13 verses this evening. Hear then the word of Almighty God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, which the Lord when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this astonishing account. We pray that we would uh, be brought face to face with our Savior, even as we gaze on this glorious day in Israel's history. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first glanced over this, so much of it just felt like the events leading up to the event, right? Uh, There was a temptation on my part early in the week to just get to Solomon's uh, speech that he gives in the next section. This is just, you know, all those details of getting us to the great event, the speech. Uh, But then the later I got in the week, the more I thought I am so inadequate to even uh, just tap into the first 13 verses in one sermon because there's so much richness here uh, to see. So I've just tried to pinpoint kind of three categories. I want to think about this day of dedication, the presence of the Lord at this day of dedication, and the foundation of the throne of God. So, first thinking about the day of dedication. The temple of God in Jerusalem was completed, and if you go back and look at the previous chapter, 
you'll find out exactly what month it is. And then if you do the nerdy thing and look in the history of Israel or or some Old Testament uh, introduction, or, or if you have a Reformation study guy, Bible, maybe it has it in there. And you can find out what month the temple was finished in and what month this event took place in. And you discover 11 months that the temple was completed and then they waited 11 months to dedicate and use the temple. That's kind of a strange thought, isn't it? Uh, if we ever built a building which wouldn't be a temple, wouldn't be nearly this amazing, but um, if you know someone donated a piece of property and a million dollars to get us started and we built a building and we finished it in November, can you imagine saying, yeah, but we won't worship there till October? That, that would just seem very strange and we would need to have a, a very clear reason why we would be continuing to pay rent on one building and uh, two, on two separate building spaces and have this building just sitting empty on the side. So what is the thought process in 11 months of this uh, temple just sitting there finished? It, it's not, my first thought was maybe they finished the building, but it took 11 months to furnish the temple. Uh, but no, the idea of the previous chapter made it fairly clear that everything was there, finished, and furnished at a certain point, and then they wait 11 months. But an, Eth- uh, an Israelite would have an easier time thinking through this because we're told here that King Solomon assembled them for this dedication in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And ah, there, there we see Solomon's thought process because as you all know, the month of Ethanim, the seventh month, is when the Feast of Booths takes place. Right, you, you know that. I don't want to insult you, but uh, that is when this takes place. And the Feast of Booths is important for two reasons, uh, either of which or both of which Solomon might be pinpointing. One of those reasons is that every seventh year, at the time of the Feast of Booths, Israel is to engage in a covenant renewal service. You can find uh, this discussed in Deuteronomy 31, 10 and 11. They were to come together as a nation uh, every year for the Feast of Booths, but on the seventh year, just like a lot of things happen every seven years in Israel's life, a a Sabbath rest, slaves go free, uh, you have to let your field sit and and recover from your uh, plowing of it, and so you can't grow in that field every seventh year. A lot of things happen the seventh year, and on the seventh year, a covenant renewal service takes place. So you can see Solomon's thought process, perhaps, that when would be a better time to worship God in this new location than when renewing our covenant uh, vows, as it were, uh, with the Lord, hearing his covenant promises and saying amen to his covenant stipulations and laws. And so that's, one aspect of the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. I think the other is uh, kind of an eschatological one, to to use the big word, that is found in the books of Moses. We hear Feast of Booths, we think, uh, while they're in the wilderness, uh, camping out, they're, uh, they're living in temporary homes, and yet I think we could lose the eschatological significance that when they enter into the promised land, they're to every year build 
shacks out of uh, twigs and branches and, and so forth. And they're to camp out with the Lord for this feast. It's a reminder of where he has brought them from. But here's the part we might miss. It's a reminder where he brought them from after God has brought them into a settled, established land with houses they did not build and fields they did not plow. In other words, it's a looking back when the consummation has happened, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in regards to their dwelling place. And so the Feast of Tabernacles also was to have this consummation aspect in terms of God himself. And we can find this. Um, we, we can read, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 14, Moses declaring, For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you, but when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you, given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Well, when has Israel ever had that? Not until Solomon, right? They're in the 400, 500 years they've been in the land. The first time that they really can say that they dwell in safety and peace is under the reign of Solomon. So now is when Moses is prophesying about. And Moses goes on and gives instruction Uh, When you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gate, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but only in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes, where you shall offer burnt offerings, and there you shall do as I command you. So you see there, Moses giving this instruction that that there's this eschatological format to this. In the wilderness, God, uh, and I don't mean this disrespectfully or, uh, uh, or anything like that, but in a real sense, the Feast of Booths is reminding them that God had a nomadic camping experience with Israel in the wilderness. And while they didn't yet have peace in the promised land, God continued, even while they were living in homes, he was still in this nomadic, tent-like existence. But now that through David's battles and through the wisdom of Solomon, they live in safety in these homes. Now God will have his own home as well established. That was to, therefore, when they celebrate the Feast of Booths, to point them ahead beyond just this temple to the things that are to come. When we dwell in perfect peace and safety with our God forever in the new heavens and the new earth, all of that was implicit back there in the Feast of Booths. And some of them might have picked up on a little of that 
And most of them probably didn't. But Solomon at least saw enough to say, this is the time when we should have this happen. At the Feast of Booths, we should celebrate God having his new house established. Well, we also in this passage see the presence of God, and that's a little more obvious to us, not having to know feasts and what month things happen in. But if we linger on God's presence on the day of dedication, we especially see two very powerful uh, emphasis on his presence, both by the placement of the ark and the descent of the glory cloud. So we have the, the placement of the ark. They break down the, the tent of meeting and uh, it is stored with reverence in a storage room at the temple. It's no longer needed, but it's not destroyed either. It is to be given a place uh, of, of reverence. It's not being cast aside like an old piece of camping gear you don't need. It's just not set up. It's not to be used anymore. It's been replaced by something better. The temple anticipating eternity declares something better than the tent he was in before. And so the ark is taken out of the tent of meeting and all else is stored away. And the ark is brought to the holy of holies, the most holy place uh, in the inner room. And I want you to recall the ark itself it is this box with the throne, the judgment seat on top, although God gives it a, a very interesting name since it's a judgment seat. He calls it the mercy seat. But what goes over that mercy seat? These two golden cherubim. But now as they bring this into the tabernacle, those little golden cherubim are nothing compared to what we saw a few weeks ago in the previous chapter, that in the Holy of Holies in the temple precinct, there are these two giant cherubim, and their wingspan is over 10 feet each, so that they span the entirety of the room, a wing touching one wall, and the other wing touching the other cherubim's wing, and that cherubim's other wing touching the other wall. It's just cherubim everywhere. Now, of course, none of us would have seen that. Only the high priest, after the contractors leave and hang up the veil, only the high priest would ever have seen that again. But imagine being even the high priest and going in there once a year, and what do you see? These massive ten-foot statues of these terrible angelic beings, and underneath their spread wings is the Ark of God. In fact, remember the longest name the Bible gives for the Ark of the Lord it's, it's found back in 1 Samuel 4, where we read this name for the ark. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Uh, that was true with the little statues on the ark. How much more gloriously depicted in this giant statue overarching the tabernacle, the ark itself. Uh, but... How much greater is the anticipation then from that to the actual heavenly throne room where the angelic host 
is getting in a competition with the people of God who have gone before us. Who can sing praise louder? And four angels surround the throne, blocking from view, not statues, but living creatures with terrible power and awesome glory. All of this is just a shadow in this Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And yet what a glorious shadow was given there of God's presence with his people there in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the promised land. They have homes they didn't work for. God has a home, which his, his son, we could say, his king, Solomon, built for him. The other emphasis in terms of his presence with his people is the descent of the glory cloud, of course. And what an astonishing image that is. I don't know that I have a lot to say about that because I know that you're all churched enough here tonight that you, you know the glory cloud. It was the, the, the pillar of fire that went before them in the wilderness uh, uh, sorry, the pillar of fire at night and the, the cloud by day that went before them in the wilderness. And when they came to Sinai, it was that glory cloud that consumed the entire mountain as if it would be completely consumed by God's glory so that the people trembled and the earth shook. And then when the tabernacle was made, it was the glory cloud that came down upon the tabernacle and the tabernacle precinct. And it it led two priests to do a foolish thing. They got caught up in the moment and they ran in to worship in a way God hadn't given and the glory cloud kills them. God's holiness strikes them dead as they come into his presence. The people are so terrified by the glory cloud that they, they tremble and beg that Moses would talk to God, not them. And Moses himself, we're told in Hebrews, trembled to have to encounter the glory of God in the Shekinah glory of this cloud. Now, understand that between that moment and this moment, some 450 to 500 years later, the glory cloud didn't just happen to hover over the tabernacle. For the vast majority of those years, people would come to worship at the tent of meeting and they would see nothing particularly glorious at all. Unless, of course, by faith, they saw the beauty of God meeting with his people as we do every Sunday. But for most of those years, no glory cloud. But now, now as God takes up his permanent residence in the promised land, Permanent, of course, being uh, permanent in terms of not a tent rather than permanent in terms of eternity. But as he takes up his, his house that's not held down by stakes, but actually has a foundation, he declares that this is the house that, that Moses had said God would call them to for worship. Is this the right place to worship God? Here's the glory cloud. And God says, when you come to this temple, you will find me. And even though that glory cloud probably faded away, we don't know how long it hovered over the temple after the day of dedication, but it certainly wasn't there for all the years until its destruction 
the temple's destruction. So it was a temporary thing, but it was a declaration. God is here to meet with his people. Now, how would they know once the glory cloud disappeared that God was still here to meet with his people? There's this almost insignificant thought, we might think, thrown in in verse 8. When they talk about the Ark of the Covenant placed between the cherubim, and, and the veil isn't mentioned, but you know how that worked, right? The, the veil that's between the Holy of Holies and the holy place where all the priests could be, that veil blocked view of the Ark. But we're told in verse 8, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen sticking out from behind the veil. Insignificant thought, right? Except that any priest going in to replace the showbread, any priest going in to light the the wicks of the, the candles that we talked about last week, these priests, although they couldn't enter in and see the Ark of the Covenant themselves, could see that it hadn't been moved. What a, what a silly thing, just the poles sticking out, and yet a testimony of God's goodness. It's still there. Hasn't been moved. You could say to your local priest, or your, uh, whatever priest you were uh, interacting with at the temple precinct, are the poles still there? Is the ark still there? Uh, but Bob Taylor uh, told me that the Ark of the Covenant is in a church in Ethiopia. So he's been told. That's the claim that the uh, Ethiopian church has, uh, that the Ark of the Covenant is in its its uh, building. And Bob had a friend who knew the, I don't know the right terminology, Archbishop of the Church of Ethiopia, wh- whoever the top, the top guy for the Church of Ethiopia is. Uh, and he asked him, have you seen the Ark? And the guy said, oh, I'm not allowed in there. Oh, some building that uh, no one's been allowed in. No one, not even the top of your denomination or whatever uh, for hundreds of years. But it's in there. It's in there. God doesn't do that in Solomon's temple. Any priest who has served in that spot can say the poles are still sticking out. I, I haven't been in to see it, but it hasn't been moved. And of course, once a year, the high priest can say it's still there, still there, covered in blood. What a glorious thought. God is with his people. Think about our Savior, Emmanuel. Some of these sermons from 1 Kings, I just, I don't want to insult any of you, and sometimes I'm afraid it's going to come off that way with some of the application, because you know John 1. And every Christmas we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we have all these thoughts of Christ, who is God with us. But, But do think of this thought. That when Christ died on the cross, that blood which was represented in the Old Covenant by that once a year blood poured over the Ark of the Covenant, blood that dripped down over the mercy seat and covered the Ten Commandments, representing God's gracious atonement for us in Christ when the reality happened. What did God do? He, as it were, bent down from heaven and ripped that veil from top to bottom. I think it's significant that scripture says it was ripped from top to bottom. 
It's saying, God did this. The hand of the Father reached down, Yahweh God, and ripped this veil in two. In Christ, who is Emmanuel, we have full access. Full access. We, we don't need to care if there's really, maybe the ark's in Ethiopia. Maybe it's in a warehouse somewhere. It doesn't matter, does it? Because the temple veil has been rent in two, and Hebrews takes us that next step. If the temple veil is torn in two by the blood of Christ, and Christ is now ascended and interceding, then we have this direct access with boldness to the throne of grace. What an astonishing thought. And then, as we think of the presence of God, we also have two glorious promises, probably more than two, but two that always pop into my head from our Savior. One, in the Great Commission itself, isn't it? He says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As he sends us out, he doesn't say, gather around and hunker down and camp out in the temple precinct and, and just focus, focus on the temple. He says, no, 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 spread out over the earth. Stop focusing here. Spread out over the earth. Make disciples and I am with you wherever you go till the end of the age. And Hebrews 13, that encouragement, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And therefore, we're to have hope. Hope that's much better, much better than some poles sticking out or a temporary shining of a cloud over a building. Well, I think there's a third thing we we should pause on for a moment in this text. And I, I think the best way to phrase it is we're shown the foundation of God's throne. Shown the foundation of the covenant throne, as it were. Uh, I, I want us to reflect that there are a few things that if you go and you know your uh, uh, books of Moses really well and know what the tent of meeting and the tabernacle precinct appeared like, there are certain things you might notice aren't here. Uh, for example... Aaron's budding staff and a jar filled with manna. Now, I, I found, I have found any number of sources where people say those were in the ark. And that's actually wrong. Uh, they were in front of the ark. It's a slight difference. But it's still true that they're not here. So the, the budding staff of Aaron, you may or may not recall that story It's in Numbers 17. And there God is going to show, uh, just as his his Shekinah glory proves that the temple is where he will take up residence, so also in Numbers 17, he's going to prove who will be my priest. And so every tribe is to put a staff from one of their elders in front of the ark that night. And uh, Aaron, God says specifically, Moses from Levi, take your brother Aaron's staff. And so they put all these 12 staffs in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And the next morning, all these staffs are just sitting there still. But Aaron's has a flower coming out of it. It's not like he went and cut it off a bush yesterday 
and uh, that flower was about to bloom anyway. These are walking sticks that they've been going through the wilderness with. And all of a sudden, this dead stick has a flower on it. And apparently, for a, a certain period of time, that flower didn't die. It just lived in this dead stick. And God said, leave that in front of the ark. Whenever the high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement, the, he'd have to step around to make sure he didn't trip on the staff. And there it would be with the, the budding flower. But it's not here in Solomon's temple. The, the jar of manna was a God saying, remember, remember my provision. And although all the manna would rot away, right? You, you picked up enough for today. You ate it. Don't store enough for tomorrow. It will rot during the night. But in this jar, it wouldn't rot. It was going to be a reminder, a memorial of God's provision in the wilderness. But that's not here either. I think that's significant. It's not just, uh, I found several commentaries that said, well, they've just been lost. Yeah. God said to leave it in front of the ark, but you know, someone lost it. I, I don't think that's an adequate explanation. The real explanation is they're no longer needed or necessary. Think of Aaron's staff. It proves the priestly line, but what is now true at the temple? The high priest whose name is righteousness of the line of Aaron, Zadok, righteousness, is established at God's temple as priest. There's no real question. There, there wasn't debate over this through all the years that would follow until, of course, uh, uh, non-Israelites tried getting involved in deciding who the high priest would be. And that was after Malachi's day and before our Lord came. Uh, but during the Old Testament, there was no debate here. And so this staff is unnecessary. Everyone knows the one person who's going to see the staff once a year is the established child of, of Aaron, the high priest. So it's no longer a necessary thing. Similar thing with the jar of manna, uh, a declaration of God's provision. But where are they? They're in the promised land living in homes they didn't build, drinking wine from vines they didn't plant, eating bread from fields they didn't plant, right? They don't need the reminder anymore that God provides. He's come through. They're in the land flowing of milk and honey. So these things pass away and are no longer needed. But notice what does remain. We're told that in the ark, the moral law of God still resides. There's nothing in the ark except the Ten Commandments on two stones of tab stone, uh, stone tablets. It rests under the mercy seat. And, and there are two things that are significant about the, the placement of those Ten Commandments in the ark under the mercy seat. One, I've already mentioned that on the Day of Atonement, blood from the mercy seat flows down and covers the Ten Commandments, representing our atonement. But I think there's another thing that's significant here as well, and that is, what does the throne of God sit on? What is its foundation? What is the thing that upholds it? The psalmist knows 
Because there are several times in the Old Testament Psalms where we're told his throne is established in righteousness and on a foundation of righteousness and holiness. And this is God's definition of righteousness and holiness for us. His law. So his mercy seat, his judge's bench, sits upon the Ten Commandments, symbolic of his kingly rule. Well, what about Emmanuel's reign? We can be tempted to think that Christ's reign is one where the law is obsolete and the Ten Commandments get thrown in with that. Not just the ceremonial law, which which is fulfilled in Christ and no longer something we practice, but it's so easy in our day and age to, to throw the Ten Commandments in with that as well. Um, but while they certainly aren't here for us as the taskmaster, a hopeless way of salvation, nonetheless, the covenant king does not negate his law. The covenant king being here doesn't say, well, all that I said I loved before, I don't love anymore. What a foolish thought, but that's how we think. The covenant king loved it then, but now that he's with us always, even to the end of the age, he doesn't care. That's not what we find in scripture at all. In fact, if we think about several, several texts together, and especially 1 Corinthians 13 and John 14, I, I think we find something rather striking about God's law. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that some things will pass away, like Aaron's rod or a jar of manna. Prophecy will cease, and tongues will cease, and signs will cease. You know, there will be a day in glory when the sacraments will cease. Because like Aaron's blooming rod and the jar of manna, they will not be needed ever again. Sacraments are visible signs for people who are living by faith, not sight. But when the sight comes, that which symbolizes it is is not needed. And so 1 Corinthians 13, prophecies will cease, tongues will cease. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be need for any divine revelation through prophets. You won't even need presumably a preacher because Christ is there speaking. What a glorious thought. But then notice what 1 Corinthians 13 says, that love remains. When preaching his famous series on this, Jonathan Edwards referred to this verse. His sermon title was, Heaven is a world of love. What a great title. Heaven is a world. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying. Things will pass, but love won't pass. But notice that verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13 defines what kind of love we're talking about. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So it's a defined love. And when we put that together with Christ, our covenant prophet, priest, and king, in John 14, saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Ah, Christ pulls all of our thoughts here from our text together, doesn't he? Keep my law. 
keep my law if you love me, and my Father will make his dwelling with you. Thank God for that. Peter also adds to this, in case we miss what Christ is saying, he declares, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So as we look forward to that great day in the new heavens and the new earth, where only righteousness remains. We, we need to remember that only righteousness remains is the same as God saying, where only the keeping of my law is found in the land. No breaking of my law. Read the horrible things that men and women do to each other right now in our newspapers and think a day will come in the new heavens and the new earth where Only, if there was a newspaper, only people doing God's law would remain. What an astonishing thought that is. I feel like during COVID, several YouTube people did uh, positive news shows from their homes. But that's nothing compared to what we're told in Scripture. That in the new heavens and the new earth, only righteousness remains the righteousness established on God's holy law, which is his own standard for his judgment himself, as his mercy seat covered in blood sits upon it. Let's give thanks to our God for this. Let's come before him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this glorious temple of Solomon's. And even as we think about it, we confess that we long for something greater than Solomon's temple. We long for that day when we will see you face to face with unveiled faces coming into your presence in joy without sin. Lord, we long for Christ's return. Come quickly. But Lord, since our eyes struggle and our faith is weak, we ask now, that as we come to your holy sacrament, you would greatly bless us by it, confirm us in faith and in love, draw us to covenant renewal, work nourishment so that we might go forth living for you and in your ways. So Lord, do all of this now at your table we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. For those at home, the grace of our Lord be with you.